Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. David Suzuki is best known as the host of CBC TV's The Nature of Things. But over the course of his long and illustrious career, he also hosted a few series for CBC Radio. Hello, I'm David Suzuki. Human beings have undergone fundamental changes that have transformed us into a new kind of force. Never before in the four billion year history of life on Earth has a single species been able to alter the geological, biological, and physical features of the planet. We have evolved from naked ape to super species. The themes he addresses in his work are timeless and, it has to be said, shockingly prescient to us today. We're calling our showcase of his radio work Suzuki's Survival Guide, a retrospective. This episode originally broadcast on Ideas in 1999. In my discussions about environmental issues, I often end up talking about economics. In fact, people often say to me, Listen, Suzuki, we can't afford a clean environment if we don't have a strong and growing economy. The economy is a fact of modern life. People produce, consume, and exchange things, and the economy measures this activity and regulates it. We call economics a science, and economists even win Nobel Prizes. But for most of us, the economy is a mystery, although we accept it as a basic part of our lives. We know that we all participate in it one way or another, even though we often feel at its mercy. Lately, we seem to be obsessed by it. The economy is suffering. The economy is improving. The economy is stable or unstable. You'd think it was a patient on life support in an intensive care unit. Hazel Henderson is a futurist and economic analyst who has been writing books about what's wrong with economics for the past 30 years. I caught up with her at a recent conference in Colorado. I want to start right from the beginning. Assume, which is a good assumption, that I don't know anything about economics, and I'd like to start by saying, what is an economy? Well, an economy really is a fiction because you cannot separate what people do around production and consumption and exchange and all of that from the rest of human life. So it was always a mistake uh, of the economic textbooks to uh, do what the Buddhists say, reify this thing, you know, and say that the economy is some kind of separate thing. Of course it's not some kind of separate thing. But that was a very convenient fiction because it allowed a lot of political control over a very key part of what human beings do together. So that's what I've, what I've spent most of my life trying mm-hmm. to unmask, you know, that um, that economics is really politics in disguise. And, you know, why don't we unpack the whole thing and say, look, an economy is really nothing but a set of rules. The rules are about the laws of supply and demand, the efficiency of a free market. 
Economics keeps track of the money we exchange for goods and services. But as a biologist, I've always felt that economics seems to pay no attention to the real world of nature. Nature does all kinds of things, like give us wood, medicines, and food, to say nothing of clean air, water, and energy. Hazel Henderson says there's another important part of our lives that isn't counted in the economic equation. She calls it the love economy. That's all the productive work that humans do that has no money value attached to it, like raising families and community work. To illustrate her ideas, Hazel Henderson likes to imagine the economy as a three-layer cake with icing. Well, you know, I was trying to describe, summing up in one drawing, what, what I was trying to do to reframe economics and bring in what I call the love economy, you know, the 50% of all of the production and consumption and uh, useful work, which is outside of the money economy, which therefore economists ignore. And of course, uh, nature's productivity, which they also ignore. And I can remember drawing this three-layer cake with icing on the top. And showing it to my daughter, who was then about 10, you see, and I said, hey, Ali, do you understand what mother's trying to do here? You know, this is what I'm trying to say. And the economists only think about, you know, what they call the private sector, you know, which is the icing on the cake and the public sector, which is, you know, the, the next layer down. But they forget these two other layers at the bottom, you know, the love economy and nature, which are holding the whole thing up. You know, the real uh, community life, which we realize now is the glue that holds everything together, you know, this um, sharing and altruism and, um, you know, and, and nature's productivity. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool, Mom. Yeah, I understand what that is. <laughs> The way Hazel Henderson describes the economy, even I can understand it, and I'm not as smart as a 10-year-old kid. Conventional economics has no way to account for the ozone layer, for example. It performs services for us, like shielding all life from DNA-damaging ultraviolet radiation. That's a part of nature's services, but that's not figured into conventional economics. You know... I once tried to sit in on an economics course and was appalled when the professor said sharing, cooperating, and caring are emotional and irrational acts. He said acting in pure self-interest is rational, and that's why modern economics rests on the principle of self-interest. I mentioned this to Hazel Henderson. It's terrible. I mean, that's when I noticed that in the textbooks. I thought, my God, no wonder we're in such deep trouble. You know, if the textbooks say that the only kind of rational behavior is maximizing self-interest in competition with all other comers, then that's a recipe for a society which is going to end up as a behavioral sink. And uh, so once I picked up that whole idea, you know, that they treated um, altruism and love and sharing and caring as irrational, I thought, well, my gosh, you know, we, the only thing to do is to organize against this discipline and really defrock them. And so, you know, that's why I'm so roundly hated uh, <laughs> in the economics profession. And, you know, for years and years, David... Students, you know, because I've been at this 30 years, students would put my books on the library shelves and professors would order them off. <laughs> One of the things Hazel Henderson has written a lot about is how the environment has been left out of economics. For example, the major indicator of the state of the economy 
is a measurement called the gross domestic product, or the GDP. It's accepted as an indication of how well a country is doing. But is it really? Ralph Nader points out that every time there's a car accident and people are hurt, the GDP goes up. They need ambulances, doctors and nurses, hospital beds, car repairs. All of this involves an exchange of money and increases the GDP. After the Exxon Valdez oil spill, the U.S. GDP rose by $2 billion. Hazel Henderson is involved with an investment fund called the Calvert Group, which is trying to come up with a whole new set of criteria for measuring true economic and social well-being. I'm a contrarian, and whatever the herd is doing, I'm trying to do something else, you know. And that's really the work I've been doing on Wall Street since, you know, 1982 with the Calvert Social Investment Funds. And so what I'm doing with the Calvert Group is we have 12 aspects of quality of life. And, and this is just based on what voters all over the world in democracies say is important to them. Education, health, uh, recreation, environment, culture, you know, all of these other things, poverty gap. People don't like the idea the poverty gap gets wide. It's very uncomfortable for people. And of course, it creates a lot of crime, uh, naturally. And that's one of the real problems with GNP, is that it averages out income. So that, you know, if you average out income per capita, you could have a society with one or two billionaires and everybody else homeless. And it would still look like it was great on the average, you see. This is how insane GNP is. So, um, we're looking at all of these different aspects of what voters say is quality of life. What Hazel Henderson is saying is that we lead very complex lives. We can't reduce the joy our children bring us, our hobbies, making a living, and our neighborhood safety down to a single number. We need a new measure. Well, the most important thing about it is it's not all lumped together and averaged, and economists are absolutely not in charge of it. And the one thing, if there's only one thing I want to leave people with in terms of talking about alternative indicators of wealth and progress is don't let economists be in charge of them because uh, many well-meaning economists now are trying to pull and tug the GNP and saying, well, we'll include this and we'll include that. And of course, the GNP can be corrected. But my indicators um, are trying to show that the only way to do indicators of quality of life in a holistic way in complex societies is that they should be multidisciplinary. They can't, you can't have one discipline in charge. Hazel Henderson could be thought of as an outsider, but even within the economic mainstream, there are respected scholars who are critical of their own discipline. One of them is Herman Daly. He was a senior economist at the World Bank for six years. He now teaches at the University of Maryland School of Public Affairs. Almost a decade ago, Herman Daly wrote a book called For the Common Good with a theologian, John B. Cobb, Jr. It was an attempt to bring social, environmental, and spiritual values into the economic equation. He's part of a new discipline called ecological economics. 
I also asked him what an economy is. What is an economy? I would say that it's a community of people who, through division of labor and exchange, live a life in some mutuality or interdependence. And they depend not only on each other, but they depend on the natural world, the natural community from which they extract materials and services and to which they have to return waste. So I would say there's two levels of community, the natural community that must be respected for the economy to be sustainable, and the human community and its mutual interdependence and division of labor. Those relations of justice and dependence have to be respected also. Herman Daly, like a growing number of economists, points out that nature sustains the economy. I told him that in Canada, the biggest and most important ministry in the government is finance, while the environment portfolio is a minor one and poorly funded. I saw the same thing when I worked at the World Bank. In many countries, the environmental uh, ministry was very small. The Ministry of Finance was the number one. I think, in a way, that's reflective of our kind of basic paradigm in economics. Standard economics tends to see the total as being the macro economy. That's that's everything. That's the whole. And uh, the environment is a part of that. It consists of, oh, some firms that are engaged in forestry, fishing, uh, and waste uh, control, and so on. But there's not the vision that the ecosystem is a containing envelope which contains and sustains the macroeconomy. That's what's missing, and that's why I think ecological economics is so important, because it starts its whole analysis from this vision of the economy as subsystem of the larger natural ecosystem. The problem is... We've got it backwards. It's not that the economy contains the environment. It's the other way around. The reality is the environment includes everything, and the economy is a part of it. Everything we make comes from the earth. Plastic, paper, cars, computer disks, everything, even patios. But most economists think there are no limits to growth because we're so clever and inventive. Not only is endless growth seen as possible, it's seen as necessary. But what happens when we run out of natural resources? A lot of people think we'll just find new ones or invent alternatives. Herman Daly puts a different twist on this. Well, I think that's a common assumption that technology and human inventiveness is limitless. But my way of looking at that is to say, well, all right, let's assume that's the case, and I I hope it is. If our inventiveness is limitless, then we ought to be able to stabilize the rate of resource consumption, the rate of depletion and pollution, keep the flow-through of materials well within the biological capacities of the ecosystem, and then through our inventiveness, increase the productivity of that given flow beyond limit. We'll just do better and better with a given flow of resources and direct our limitless uh, ingenuity in that direction instead of in the other direction of trying to remake the ecosystem to fit the rate of growth of money in the bank. Money grows fast, and nothing in nature can keep up with it. For example, in British Columbia, trees increase in size at about 2 to 3% a year. That means if you cut down a volume of 2 to 3% of your forest annually, 
you can log the equivalent of the whole forest over a period of 20 or 30 years and still have an intact forest left. In other words, you could go on harvesting trees like that forever. But that would make no economic sense. Because if you clear-cut all the trees at once and invest the money, you could make 20 or 30% a year. Money grows faster than trees. So economic thinking demands that we trash the forest. Herman Daly. I once uh, saw, I thought, a very nice cartoon which expressed that. You know, a fisherman standing with a puzzled look on his face, shrugging his shoulders. And on the one side, he was pointing to the fish in the sea in his net, which were saying, slow down, we can't grow that fast. And then on the other hand, he was pointing to the bank with the banker saying, speed up, we have to grow faster. And so there you are. You know, he's caught between the rate of growth of money and the rate of natural biological growth rates of species. So, I mean, the obvious reaction would be the natural growth rates are given, and the rate of growth of money in the bank is a little bit artificial. It's not governed by natural laws, for sure. Uh, so we ought to adjust the rate of growth of money in the bank so that it's more in conformity with the rate of growth of natural populations that we depend upon. Now, that's what I take to be the way to do it. I sometimes worry that with our new technology now, we're striving to do the opposite. In reality, the rate of biological growth cannot match economic growth. So we try to put nature on steroids. We're taking as given or autonomous the rate of growth of money in the bank, and by golly, we'll just redesign the genetic structure of everything we depend upon so that it grows as fast as money in the bank. So we increase you know, agricultural growth rates and uh, design new uh, animal husbandry techniques of cloning and everything else in, in order to get that growth rate up. And uh, that strikes me as a, a rather dangerous thing. It's a little bit like extending credit. You know, you, <laughs> it looks good now, but you don't know if it's going to really pay off later. And even if it does, it avoids the question of what is autonomous and what is accommodating. And we seem to be more and more moving towards the idea that rates of growth of money in the bank are autonomous and the natural world is accommodating or it will have to adjust it. And that seems to me uh, the wrong way to go. The Greek word oikos means household. It's the linguistic root of both ecology, the study of the household, and economics, its management. The two disciplines should be intimately tied together. That's why ecological economics is an exciting development in the way we're beginning to think about how human activity fits into the natural world. Well, I think slowly it's beginning to have more of an impact. It's provided a forum for people who want to get out of either standard economics, which is kind of, you know, like let's pretend that nature doesn't exist, and also people who want to get out of standard ecology, which very often is let's pretend that man doesn't exist and get the two together in a more realistic set of assumptions and look at the true macroeconomy, the, the real household, the total system, the ecosystem, and study the relations of that larger system to the smaller system that it supports. Clearly, the value of the total ecosystem is infinite. Well, however much we value our lives, we ought to impute that total value to what sustains our life. And so, in that sense, it's just beyond calculation. 
I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. This is a special series about human culture and its impact on the natural world. The modern global economy didn't always exist. Remember that we came through a huge depression in the 1930s, and what got the economy going again was a war, World War II. At the end of that war, the American economy had become the dominant economy in the world. Fueled by genuine altruism and a lot of self-interest, the United States exported its largesse and American ideas about progress and development around the world. David Corton has a Ph.D. from the Stanford Business School. He taught at Harvard and spent most of his career in overseas development work. Like so many other young American professionals, he wanted to go out and help the rest of the world. You know, when I was a young graduate, you know, graduated from Stanford in 1959, and in that year made a decision that I would devote my life to development work to uh, bring American management methods so all the rest of the world could live properly like we do. <laughs> and, um, well, it was interesting. It, there were complex motives there, too, because at that time I was very conservative and I was very concerned about uh, the spread of communism and revolution, and there was an underlying sense that if we didn't do something to end poverty, it would be a threat to our American way of life. I certainly did not at that point see it as, you know, U.S. has got to colonize the world in order to maintain our own lifestyles. And, you know, working within the system, there, you know, there's a very strong sense that we're doing this uh, out of our altruism and our concern uh, to help other people live better lives. With youthful idealism and energy, David Corton plunged into third world development work. But over and over again, in places like Ethiopia, Central America, and Southeast Asia, he kept noticing that the kind of prosperity and progress he expected from U.S. aid didn't seem to be materializing. Now, as you participate in this process, if you're at all alert, you certainly notice that a lot of things don't seem to work very well. But, of course, it's difficult. You know, these countries are really backward and they're not educated and so forth. So, so that's not too surprising. And, of course, you know, it must be working better someplace else because if it was working this badly everywhere, then, you know, somebody would surely notice it and do something about it. So I guess we just have to try a little harder here. The other piece of it is that, uh, that some people do do well. And... Uh, you know, it's very easy to go to Asia, for example, and, you know, you land in a big fancy modern airport and a big jumbo jet and you, there's all sorts of duty-free shops and you ride into town, it's a big uh, superhighway and lots of limousines and go stay in a five-star hotel and there'll be a, you know, shopping mall next door and so forth. And gee, you know, I mean, things really are moving ahead. But then for a few of us, we then begin to see that... Uh, yeah, there's this facade, and some people are doing very well. And you begin to realize, yeah, in fact, you know, the people who run the system, the people who own the corporations or run the corporations, the people with good jobs in government and so forth, the senior academics, you know, they're all doing really well. And from their standpoint, the system is working. What David Corton began to notice 
was that the major beneficiaries of American aid were an elite minority within the developing countries. Large numbers of people remained mired in poverty, and the natural environment they depended on for their livelihood was being rapidly destroyed by industrial development. And then you begin to see that behind the facades of development, more and more people are being displaced. There's more and more deep misery that the forests are being stripped away. You know, you go out snorkeling in the tropical coral reefs, and uh, the coral reefs aren't there anymore. It looks like a barren landscape under the water instead of, uh, you know, just these rich gardens of coral and fish and this extraordinary life that we used to see when we'd go out along the coast. And then it gradually begins to dawn that, you know, something is really more deeply wrong. And then if you start looking at the statistics and the studies from around, you begin to realize that it's not, you know, the problems are not just local. They're every place. What really became a shock for me was when, you know, as I began to piece together that what we were seeing in southern countries was deepening poverty and inequality environmental devastation, and a breakdown of the social fabric. I think that's when I really became shocked and realized that, you know, there's really something deeply systemic wrong. You know, it's not just that we don't quite have the right fine-tuning on our concept of development, but that our whole concept of progress is wrong, and that most of our dominant institutions were creations of a mindset that focused purely on growth in production and the monetary value of the products produced by the economy. You're listening to Ideas, and to the fifth of our special summer series, we're calling Suzuki's Survival Guide, a retrospective. We're a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Back in 1999, David Suzuki presented a series here on Ideas called From Naked Ape to Super Species. In this episode, Suzuki addresses the clash of values when it comes to ecological sustainability and economic growth. The main concept in economic planning that emerged soon after the end of World War II was the equation of progress with growth. David Corden also noticed that all the problems in the developing world were also present in the developed world, but they were masked by our greater wealth. The paradox is that while the economy has continued to grow, more and more people are becoming poor, and human suffering has not diminished. Since 1950, there's been roughly a five and a half times increase in total global economic output. And 
the you know the policies are still driven by the presumption that the you know, the solution to poverty is growth, the solution to the environmental problem is growth, because then we generate the resources which well, we can be rich enough to afford to clean up the environment. And of course, as we do that, what we do is we continue to increase the burden on the ecosystem. We break it down so that the very foundation of all wealth of all of the total productive system is being diminished. We're, we're destroying the natural capital. But the other thing that we do is intensify the competition for that resource base between the rich and the poor. And of course the rich win that competition. So the very fundamental assumptions underlying almost all of our public policy are actively creating the crisis that we see deepening around us and we're in this kind of feedback trap. The worse the crisis gets, the more determined the people who are making the decisions are that we need to press ahead with exactly the policies that are creating the destruction. We've always transformed natural capital, fish, trees, soil, water, into economic capital. But every unit of economic output adds to the human impact on the environment. Now, most of the Earth's real wealth is being exploited. A good deal of our economic activity, then, merely transfers wealth from one set of hands into another. David Corton. The real nature of money is that it's a claim on wealth. So people who have money have a claim, you know, because of a social convention, are able to use that to lay claim to real resources, which you know, would be people's labor, it would be real technology, it would be real land, plant, equipment, buildings, skills, all those sorts of things, which, which are real capital, real productive resources. Or they lay claim to real goods and services. Now, when the money system is working properly, it's essentially a mechanism to facilitate transactions within the real wealth-creating economy. Now, what we've got as you move into what some people proudly refer to as finance capitalism, you're essentially moving into creating money out of nothing, <laughs> which means that one group of people are creating, you know, they're not, they, they, they think it was creating wealth, but actually what they're doing is capturing wealth, or they're creating claims on the wealth of the rest of society. You know, the reality is that we're dealing with a finite natural wealth base. It is not a growing pie. It is a fixed pie in that regard. And so to keep expanding the wealth of the very wealthy, you basically have to push more and more people off of access to that basic source of, of sustenance. And that, you know, that's pretty much the story of our time. Economic issues are constantly in our thoughts. Governments are slashing social services, including medical care, welfare, and education. We've got to deal with the debt and deficit first, we're told, so the economy will grow and we can afford things like social security, better health care, and environmental protection. Alan Durning thinks there's plenty of money to pay for all this, but right now, it's being misdirected. 
He wrote an important book for the World Watch Institute called How Much is Enough? Now, he's head of Northwest Environment Watch in Seattle. He's got a surprising list of ways we destroy our natural surroundings and how we use our tax dollars to do it. You know, I live in Seattle, which is part of the Pacific salmon homeland. And you hear people in public life all the time saying that we may not be able to afford to save the salmon. So it'll cost too many billions of dollars to protect them. But in fact, it's exactly the opposite is true. Salmon live their life cycle and travel upstream and then spawn and they're young are born there and travel downstream and go out in the ocean. At every stage along the way, you find taxpayer dollars being spent in a way that harms the salmon. In the headwaters, hundreds of millions of tax dollars are paid to build roads so that loggers can go into publicly owned forests and cut them down. From the roads, soil washes into the salmon streams to the salmon habitat. A little bit further downstream, there's huge public subsidies for ranchers to run cattle on land that also erodes into salmon streams. A little further downstream, there are publicly subsidized dams and hydroelectric dams and irrigation dams. Those subsidies run to billions of dollars just in the Northwest region alone. A little further downstream, you come to the aluminum smelters that are using the subsidized electricity from the dams and emitting the pollution, uh, emitting global warming chemicals into the atmosphere. A little further downstream, you come to the uh, suburban developments along the sides of the rivers, all of which are subsidized with local tax dollars because the developers don't pay the full cost of providing the roads and the sewers and so on. So people's property tax dollars are going to subsidize local development. A little further downstream than that, you have the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers dredging out the channel of the rivers so that ocean-going ships can come in and out of the river and land there. And again, it's tax dollars, tens of millions of tax dollars, paying for the dredging of the river. And then Finally, you come to where the fish hatcheries are, tens of millions of dollars of tax dollars going to provide fish hatcheries which are supposed to mitigate the effects of the loss of salmon upstream. But in fact, we now know that the fish hatcheries are weakening the genetic stock of the wild fish. Then, because of all of this upstream damage, all at our expense, the federal government has to put in disaster relief aid to fishing communities welfare checks for unemployed fishermen, and then even more money to try to repair habitat or do research on how to help the fish survive. So it's not that we can't afford to save the fish, it's that we probably can't afford to keep on killing them. The salmon is a classic example of the misdirection of public money. But it's not the only one. We are literally paying billions of dollars in perverse subsidies to industries that cause social and environmental breakdown. Most of the resource extraction industries are fairly heavily subsidized, the mining industry, the oil and natural gas production industries, the timbering industries. To some extent, agriculture, though the subsidies there are rather convoluted. But as significant are subsidies to urban real estate development, particularly suburban real estate development, subsidies to cars, to driving, typically about $100 a month per car in North America ranging from the free parking that you're provided all over the city to the price of gasoline you pay that doesn't include the full medical cost of caring for all the people who are run over by automobiles. The roads that you drive on are subsidized. They're paid for not only out of gas taxes, but also out of local property taxes and sometimes income and sales taxes. 
just about everything that you do in the car, you're paying part of the cost and, and somebody else is paying another chunk of it. It used to be that a lot of freight was moved around this continent on trains. Most of that freight is now being moved by truck. As a mode of transport, trains are much easier on the environment than trucks. But it's commonly assumed that trains just cost too much. They're not competitive because they have to be subsidized. But highways are subsidized, too. Alan Durning. The huge subsidization of the highway infrastructure has resulted in the long shift away from rail and onto the roads for a movement of freight. Now, in the United States, at least, train companies own their own rail bed. The truckers don't own the road bed, right? It's paid for by through tax dollars. It's subsidized, as I mentioned. And the rail system has a really hard time competing. So if we eliminated the subsidies to road transportation, that would all by itself shift some of the freight back onto rails and make it a much more viable venture economically. If we went even further, and this is, I think, the big thing that we can do as a matter of public policy, if we can shift the taxes off of people's wages and onto natural resource use, then we'll put a huge amount of momentum behind rail transportation, behind more efficient vehicles, behind more compact land use development. All of the environmental protection measures that we've been talking about since the 1970s, all of the ways that we can do 50 simple things or a thousand simple things to help save the environment, all of it will be encouraged by our pocketbook. Whereas right now, we're taxed for working, for saving, for investing, and we're subsidized to pollute, to deplete natural resources, and to consume natural habitats. Champions of the free market tell us we can't afford to subsidize the poor and disadvantaged. But they're silent when it comes to welfare for major industries. Alan Durning. It's just this enormous irony that the so-called proponents of the free market are in fact supporting the exact opposite. They're supporting free markets for young teenage mothers by reducing the public welfare programs, right? Free market for those people. But for the big industrial players, well, that's something different. If it's worth enough to the economy to have the goods, then it certainly doesn't require a public subsidy. The subsidies reflect political power. They reflect organized constituencies which over decades have sufficiently ingratiated themselves to the lawmakers that they got subsidies written into the books. And now the public has yet to be sufficiently informed and organized to get the subsidies out of the books. That's all it is. Billions and billions of dollars out of government treasuries or in tax write-offs go to stimulate and encourage the pollution and resource depletion and habitat destruction that we're also concerned about. We're paying to have it destroyed. There's absolutely no economic theory that credentialed economists would swear to that says we need to subsidize environmental destruction in order to put dinner on the table. We use words in our culture to define ourselves. We live under a capitalist system, within a free market economy, 
that fosters democracy. These are all terms that have positive connotations at the moment. But sometimes our basic assumptions and definitions are what we have to question first. John Ralston Saul is an historian. His books about the current state of Western culture, Voltaire's Bastards, and The Unconscious Civilization are bestsellers. Saul says one of our biggest problems is equating our current economic system, capitalism, with our current political system, democracy. We're victims of an idea of how democracy works and how our society works in its relationship to economics and to capitalism. And essentially what you just hear all the time from perfectly well-meaning people, I mean, often people who think of themselves as being humanist, left of center, center, you know, red towards whatever, they will just automatically accept what they would call probably the 19th century liberal approach, or which is essentially a laissez-faire approach, which is that in order to get democracy, you have to have a middle class. In order to get a middle class, you have to have prosperity. In order to get prosperity, you have to have economics leading the way. So you then end up with this definition by mistake of democracy, which is capitalism leads to a middle class, leads to democracy. And that idea, which is not only common, I mean, it absolutely dominates throughout the West today in all age groups, most political groups, most political parties. It's just garbage. Just garbage. It doesn't stand up to historical analysis in any way, shape, or form. And that's what I was trying to show in The Unconscious Civilization in particular was the extent to which individualism, real individualism, and the concepts of responsibility of the public good and democracy didn't come out of the Industrial Revolution in any way, shape, or form. They, in fact, came out of a very long process, which you can take back to Athens. So I think having locked ourselves into that idea, that false idea, then we're in a particularly weak position to look at economics, capitalism, business sector, money-making, in a sort of cool way, because we feel that everything we do successfully is dependent on the success of the marketplace and that it, to in any way analyze the marketplace in the sense that well we might change the shape of it or the direction of it is in some way to endanger democracy by endangering prosperity. So it's, it's a whole logic. John Ralston Saul points out that democracy had its roots in ancient Greece long before capitalism made its appearance. Capitalism didn't arise in Europe until the Middle Ages. But we tend to think that democracy grew directly out of capitalism. This makes it very difficult to challenge the reigning ideology of the market. But there's more. John Ralston Saul says, Our society has become fragmented into interest groups that are based on competition and elitism. If you're in, as I describe it, a corporatist society which is essentially a society where people exist through belonging to interest groups and that people are basically admired and promoted through a breaking down of their relationship to society into smaller and smaller groups and specializations, it becomes increasingly difficult to come up with any sort of sensible inclusive economics. Because the whole structure of the society moves towards breaking things down into smaller and smaller interest groups. So that the more you close yourself into the idea that society is, is self-interest and it is the totaling up, the joining together of all the interests, the more you accept the idea that, that there 
will not be any relationships beyond self-interest, which you could use to lead society in a different direction. The idea of self-interest has taken such hold that we've come to believe there's no other way of doing things. John Ralston Saul. Every day you hear words, sentences, phrases, approaches, which indicate that the assumption is that society is interest-based. And there is an enormous, no matter how nice people are, I mean, the environmental movement is filled with people who actually talk and act as if society were interest-based. They win their victories on the basis of, you know, the trading off of interests. And so that even in winning their victories, they're undermining the idea that society is driven, real society is driven by something completely different, which is the public good, you know, and which has always been there, and which is not some great idealistic thing, and you never actually achieve what you set out to achieve, but it's there, it's always been there, and that's what is tied to the rise of democracy, it's tied to the rise of the idea of citizenship, and to the idea of responsible individualism. What John Ralston Saul is telling us is that we have to re-examine some of our most cherished beliefs if we are to get a grip on the root causes of the biggest issues facing us. Herman Daly is a highly respected economist. He's part of a growing number of thinkers who say we have to reassess the entire purpose of economics. I think economics should be about sufficiency as much as it's about efficiency, but it's not. There's, uh, I think, in economic theory, a kind of principle or an assumption of non-satiety. That is, one never gets enough. You can't ever get enough. And we've built our economy around the idea of growth, I believe, in order, partly, uh, to avoid facing up to the problem of sharing. Because if you don't continue to grow and you still have poverty, then you have to redistribute. You have to share in order to cure poverty. How do you cure poverty without sharing? Well, by growing and by claiming that there will be a trickle down to the poor, the poor will participate in the growth dividend and so forth. Number one, that generally doesn't happen. But even if it did, that's still a kind of a substitution of growth for sharing. To avoid the moral problem of sharing, we say moral problems are too difficult, we'll convert it into a technical problem of just growing faster, then we won't have to deal with it. We've gotten away with that for a long time when we were living in a relatively empty world with abundant resources and spaces. Now that we're in pretty much a full world with much tighter limits, I don't think we can get away with that strategy. And maybe uh, in some way that'll force us to face up to the moral issue. We're filling up the world, and our natural resources are becoming scarcer. If the economy ever stopped growing, what would happen? We'd have to really think about what's important and what makes our lives valuable and worth living. Hazel Henderson is also trying to rethink economics and how we measure our quality of life. She says we need a multiplicity of indicators to measure everything that contributes to our well-being. 
There's a very rich debate going on right now about indicators, which I love, because we want a thousand flowers to bloom, and all around the world, cities are doing indicators, and what's a healthy city? And um, the city near where I live in Florida, Jacksonville, they've had their own indicators of quality of life and progress for the city of Jacksonville. They have 83 indicators, <laughs> and they've been doing that since the early 1980s, mm. and the citizens get together and if they are doing well on their school and education indicators for example they'll say okay let's move the goalpost now we're ready to achieve higher standards mm -hmm. here or the same with water quality and so they have a feedback component from the citizens they get together and they have you know a huge kind of forum and so this is a living kind of feedback mechanism. It's part of collective decision making, which is the thing, as you know as a biologist, human beings from like 98% of our experience have lived in nomadic tribes of 25 or so <laughs> as gatherers and um, occasional hunters. And so we got quite good living in villages. And we had that face-to-face -face kind of feedback systems to run our affairs. And then we got in, we moved into towns and cities. And uh, we now are living in mega cities, as you know, which we have absolutely no experience how to manage our affairs. And so indicators are a rudimentary form of social intelligence that we're creating together. And so I see them as real social learning and cultural evolution, which is really what has to happen now. I mean, we're not talking about economic growth here. We're talking about development of the human and cultural development. And I mean, basically, haven't we all been talking about the evolution of the human species? really rich and who is poor? I've had first-hand experience of the way conventional economics impoverishes people. I've visited villages so remote they can only be reached by boat or float plane. Villages surrounded by vast untouched forests and oceans teeming with turtles, fish and mammals. From Klemtu in British Columbia to Wewak in Papua New Guinea and Boroboro in Colombia, I've had similar experiences. I once flew into a village of 200 people and was met at the dock by most of the villagers. That night, I was ushered into the community center for a feast. Everyone was there, and the tables were overflowing with delicacies from the sea, aromatic fruits, and exotic vegetables. After dinner, the tribal leader began his speech to me by saying, We are poor. We need development. When I got up to speak, I began my reply by saying, I live in a city called Vancouver, which is highly developed. In the one block where I live, there are probably twice as many people as in this village. Yet I only know 15 or 20 of my neighbors. At night, I lock the car in my house because we've been broken into several times. We buy our water in bottles and stay inside when there's a smog alert. I could never put on a feast like the one I've just eaten here. To me, 
You are far richer in community and resources than we are in Vancouver. On my way out of that place, I realized that our idea of economics makes people poor and forces them to destroy the very things that sustain them. Of course, those people want many of the things we take for granted books, doctors, even TV and running shoes. But must they come at the expense of vibrant societies and rich ecosystems? We need new ways to measure wealth, ones that put value back onto community, air, water, and the richness of life around us. This episode originally broadcast on Ideas in 1999. It was produced by Jane Lewis and Bernie Lucht, with research and assistance from Holly Dressel. Studio technician, Dave Field. It's part of a special series we're calling Suzuki's Survival Guide, a retrospective. And in our next episode, we jump ahead a decade into episodes from The Bottom Line. In it, Suzuki explores how the Earth, air, energy, and water work together to create a perfect balance. Here's marine biologist and National Geographic explorer Sylvia Earle describing what it's like to dive deep below the surface of the ocean. Oh, David, I wish I could just scoop all the listeners aboard (laughs) and go for a dive. Going into the ocean should not seem scary. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful things that anybody can do. Diving in in a little submarine, first of all, You can breathe just as you do on the surface, most little submarines. (laughs) It's more like getting into a little car. And the air is much the same, same pressure as you have. The pressure is, you're protected from it by the submersible that you're in. And at the surface, at least when you're offshore or in a, a place that is in pretty good shape, the water's clear and blue. Go down to 100 feet, it gets bluer as you descend. You lose track of the shades of blue that turn but all darker and darker until it's it's like the deepest twilight. And then finally, below 1,000 feet, it is truly dark. And that's the way the ocean is everywhere all the time. And yet it's not completely dark. Because just as in a starry night, you see what look like stars, moons, planets, it's bioluminescent life. Most creatures in the deep sea, most I say, 90% or so, have some form of making their own light. The jellies, the little copepods, and fish that have lights down the side like little miniature ocean liners. More on the beauty and complexity of our oceans next week. Special thanks to Kate Zeman and Melody Muayidi of CBC Radio Archives. Series producer Nikola Lukšić. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.